uh, Rolling Meadows Sunday morning. It's been a while, right? All right, it is great to have the rest of you folks at all the other campuses join us, but I first just want to say thank you to you guys in particular, um, because, as I said last week in, to Elgin, uh, because you're of your grace and kindness, I've been able to go around and visit some of the other campuses. I was able to preach at North Shore and... Uh, Dude, I keep thinking the Crystal Cathedral, but that's not where I went. That's not where I went. Chicago Cathedral. Uh, same thing. Uh, and then um, Crystal Lake as well. So it's been fantastic. I get to go to Aurora next week, um, or the week after next, sorry, and I'm excited about that. So um, God bless you for your grace and kindness to let me go and do that kind of thing. The other campuses really do appreciate it a lot. Look, uh, you're going to need to have a Bible with you. You're going to need to open it to Acts chapter 4, verse 23. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. And um, while you're turning there, I want to tell you a story that I don't actually think is real. But I have heard it repeatedly in my earlier days, and it is very impactful. It's a story that's got a great twist in the end. Um, So I'll tell it to you. Don't go to Snopes while I'm doing this and checking it out. Uh, I'm sure they've already determined that it's, it's wrong. The story is set kind of in the early 80s in the Soviet Union, so under the, the communist regime, where Christianity was not something that you could practice openly. To be a Christian in those days meant to basically be part of an underground church, kind of like it is in China today. The underground churches would meet uh, by word of mouth. People would share with each other, hey, we're going to get together on this Thursday night at 8 o'clock. They would usually uh, vary the times they'd get together. It was all kind of done haphazardly. They had to figure out, you know, how to do that because uh, if you met the regular time uh, in a regular uh, spot, uh, the authorities would eventually get used to it, and they might come upon you. You very careful who you spoke to. Because uh, if you shared the news that you as a Christian were meeting with a bunch of other Christians in that day, there was a threat that the KGB might come and shut you down. And by shut you down, mean hold you uh, in contempt or, or as a treason, uh, for treason, and they might, they might actually just kill you. That's the way it worked. This particular Bible study had about 20 or 30 people in it, and they had decided to gather on a Thursday night. They got together in the basement of, of a home that had two entrances in it. That was always a really good idea. You could come down the stairs from the outside or go up the stairs into the inside and then out the front door. And so they gathered together in this basement. Uh, they had lookouts through the windows, making sure that the people who were coming in were ones they knew or the people who were coming in were not being followed by anyone. They gathered together, they finally had everybody in the room, they did what most churches do. They, they talked, spent some time together. I'm sure there was coffee. Um, and they, they opened their Bibles and they said, well, let's start studying God's Word together. And before they got even the next words out of their mouth, uh, the door crashes open and in come five KGB officers. They, of course, were surprised uh, They quickly learned that the reason those KGB officers were there was because there was a person who they thought was part of their group, had been part of their group for the last six months or so, who actually stood up and went over with the KGB officers and they realized it was a plant. The officers had guns and they took all 20 to 30 people and lined them up against the walls of the basement. And they went by one by one down the line and they held a gun to the back of their heads while they were facing the wall and they asked them this question. 
Will you deny Christ or die? The first person that they held the gun to thought about their life and about all the things that their presence was necessary for in the life of their children, the life of their family, the life of so many things and thought to themselves, well, I, I can't die. I don't mean it that much. Just came here because friends invited me and yes, I believe in Jesus, but surely he'll be able to overlook this moment. I deny Christ. They took him, they put him over in one of the corner. Then, uh, they took the uh, next person, pointed the gun at their head, and they said to them, deny Christ or die. And the next person said, I will die. Deny Christ or die, deny Christ or die, deny Christ or die, deny Christ or die. They went all the way down. In the end, they had about seven people who decided that they were willing to die for this faith. And the others were all gathered together in a group wondering what was going to happen to them. The KGB officers turned to the ones who said they would deny Christ and said, you need to get out of here and never talk about this again. If we see you in any more of these meetings, you will be held accountable. So they ran out the door, both exits, they took off. The five or six who were left, shivering, still lined up against the wall. The officers came over to, put down their guns, picked up the Bibles that were left and said, let's have a real Bible study. Okay, like I said, Snopes, let's not get them involved. That's not usually how oppression like this works. This is not usually how persecution takes place. I mean, in the end, there usually aren't two people who separate, or maybe they do separate two up. They send the people who denied off, and then the other ones, they cut their fingers off. Or they shoot them in the head. And the history of the Christian church is filled with that outcome. But it's an interesting thought experiment, isn't it? If you're lined up against that wall, what would you say? Do you know, I, I actually think that when um, opposition comes against our lives as Christians or our message as Christians, there are usually three ways that we can go with it. We're probably not going to be lined up against the wall like this, and you're only given two. But in general, just in our everyday lives, there are three ways that we can go with it. One of the ways is to basically do what the deny Christers did. You just go along. What is it that you want me to believe? I'll just do that. Where's the opposition coming from? And what's your, what's your opinion about my faith? Okay, I'll hold your opinion about my faith. Won't matter. I might in my mind think, well, I don't really hold my, their opinion. But in reality, I am. I'm showing myself to be somebody who is denying Christ. I just go, go along with it. The other option is, well, you can change the message to get along. Well, look, I, wanna, I still want to be a Christian. I still want to be somebody who holds to the faith, but I'm going to change the message of the gospel in such a way so that it, is, it accommodates you and your oppressive ideas. You say that you don't like the Christian sexual ethic? Well, I'll change the Christian sexual ethic then, and then say the Bible teaches that. You don't believe in miracles? Well, the Bible doesn't talk about miracles. I know it talks about resurrection and stuff, but that's probably talking about God being raised in your heart or something. It's a metaphor. I'll just, I'll just take the message that I've been given 
the truth about the gospel, and I'll cut the edges off of it enough so that it accommodates within the culture at large. So I get along with you. You can go along, you can get along, or you can take your stand. I'll die. I know that my life is hidden with Christ in God and that this is not the end and that there's a resurrection of the dead and that this life is short compared to eternity. So kill me now because death doesn't own me. You can take that stand. You can do that. In fact, that in the scriptures is what genuine Christians think. They've denied themselves. They've taken up their cross and they've followed Jesus, even if it means ending at the cross. It's what a genuine Christian looks like. When I look across, though, the Christian uh, world these days, and you look across it as well, I'm not sure that that third option is the one that most Christian churchy people would choose. I really don't know if it is. If they were lined up against a wall in a communist country, I'm not sure what they would, what they would choose, which raises all sorts of questions about whether they're real or what. But here's the question I want to answer today. Um, I want to ask the question, what kinds of practices and what kinds of things do you need to remember as a Christian if your faith is going to be robust enough to face that day? What kind of beliefs must be in your heart and mind and you be absolutely convinced by so that when the opposition comes, you take the third choice and you say, I'm taking my stand on God. What kind of beliefs need to be there? I got three of them from this passage. Number one, uh, you need to remember God. Two, remember God is sovereign. And third, remember the sovereign God is with us. Remember God, remember he's sovereign and remember the sovereign God is with us. So I'm going to Pick those three off in order. This passage is about a prayer. And you'll see that that's the kind of stuff they end up praying about. So, first, you need to remember God. Let me explain to you what I mean by that as we look at um, verse 23 of Acts chapter 4. And it reads, When they were released, uh, they were released. That's important. Let's think about what just has taken place. What you've had is Peter and John walking into the temple. They see a crippled guy. They heal the crippled guy. They pull him up and he starts running around. This draws a big, a big amount of tension because he's been crippled for 40 years and everybody knows who he is. So he's been running around the temple and he calls the people. They, they, people end up being just drawn to this scene. And when Peter sees the, the, the group, he starts um, preaching to them. And he says, well, this is the gospel message. This is what Jesus, who he is. Now, the teaching is something he's not supposed to do in the temple because that's controlled by the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious council. And so they get really mad. You're not allowed to teach here. You're especially not allowed to teach about the resurrection from the dead. Because we don't buy that, say the Sadducees, the ruling party in the ruling council. So they grab him, and they say, you're going to come with us. They say, put him in, in the jail overnight. They put him before the Sanhedrin the next day, and they ask them to give an account for themselves. And Peter, remember Peter, the guy who used to be standing before a barrel in front of a little girl and denying Christ? He, he didn't have a gun to his head. He had a little girl looking at him saying, I don't, I think you were with him. And he was like, oh, no, no. This guy 
decides now to stand up in front of all of the Sanhedrin and say, I don't care what you do to us. I'm not backing down. Woo, Peter. My boy. They couldn't hold them accountable because they had the guy who was healed there and the crowd was thrilled. I mean, of course you'd be thrilled this guy's been healed. This is a great work of God. So the Sanhedrin says, listen, if you do this again, if you guys say anything else again, we're going to come and get you. Keep your mouth shut about this Jesus. Peter, (laughs) okay. When they were released, they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. Uh, you got to put yourself in the shoes of their friends here for a minute. Uh, the last person who was picked up by the ruling religious council and had stood before them to give an account for their teaching was a guy named Jesus. He ended on a cross. So if your friends were walking down the same path that Jesus had just walked down and ended at a cross, you would probably be thinking to yourself, yeah, they're gone. I'm not going to see them ever again. So when they're released, you'd be a little bit like, what? Oh my goodness, Peter, John, tell us what happened. What happened? What'd they say? Well, they told us never to report anything else about what Jesus has done. And they have a choice to make, right? Right here. They have a choice to make. They've reported it, and they're all sitting together saying, hmm, that's interesting. What should we do? And so they turned to prayer. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. They lifted their voices together to God. Listen, they didn't plan a strategy. Not yet. They didn't try to figure out what the right way to go forward is given these circumstances. If I were their friends, the first thing I'd be telling is, man, we got to get you out of the town because they might change their mind in a couple minutes. So let's get you out of here. Let's just, let's get moving. But they didn't. They were like, let's pray. You know that this thread of prayer If you just read the first several chapters of the book of Acts, you will find prayer showing up over and over and over again. Uh, Acts 1, 24 to 26. They're about to to appoint a new uh, apostle because Judas had abandoned them. And they prayed, right? They prayed and they said, you Lord who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two guys that we've narrowed it down to You've chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own way. And then they cast lots. Lord, we're going to pray and then we're going to gamble. And the lot fell on Matthias and and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Lord, we know you're you're involved in this situation and so we're going to trust and live in a way where you're readily at hand and that you will answer our prayer. And so we're throwing the dice, baby. And it lands on Matthias. You get a little earlier in Acts Acts 1.14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Uh, the, The spirit was supposed to come upon the people. He hadn't yet. They were supposed to go to Jerusalem and wait. And while they're waiting, they don't try to figure out how they can bring the Spirit. They don't try to figure out what they're supposed to do in Jerusalem. They pray 
together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. A little later, um, the early church is described. What kind of things did they do as a general rule? Uh, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship to the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. Prayer, 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 prayer. You get the idea, yeah? Over and over again, you see the prayers of the church being lifted up in the midst of their situation because they don't live like practical atheists. Do you know what I mean by that line? They, they live as if God is a present reality and everything that is happening to them, all of their circumstances, they see as related to him and what he's doing in their world. They're not just happenstance, hey, that was lucky, none of that. God is here. He is active. The things that are happening, the people I cross, the reason we're waiting, whatever, all of it relates to God and what he's doing in their lives. But we Christians, man, we, we, we say that. We say that on Sunday because that's what you're supposed to say when you come to church. Amen. But then Monday to Saturday, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said it really well. He said, let me ask you, uh, he's a big pastor of a church, about 5,000 people, one of the earliest megachurches ever, right? This is in the 19th century. He says, let me ask you how many atheists are now in this house? And he asked that of his church. How many atheists here? And perhaps not a single one of you would accept the title, and yet if you live from Monday morning to Saturday night in the same way as you would live if there were no God, you are practical atheists. Now you can say that you believe in God all you want, but your life is lived in such a way that he's not there. And this was not how the early church functioned. You can imagine the week. I mean, guys, maybe this sounds familiar to you. You go to church, hear about God, because this is the place you think about God. You get in the car, you go home. When you get home, uh, you watch the bears and the cursing begins. <laughs> and, and then you, you, you watch them long enough and you feel deeply saddened. You don't like your dog anymore. You get upset with your wife or husband. And then you have to plan for the week of work. So you sit down and you start looking at the things that you have to do this week. There's an anxiety that lifts up because you're not entirely sure about how you're going to handle all of the meetings and issues that you've got this week. And on Tuesday, you've got to confront that particular employee and you're not entirely sure how that's going to go. And you don't like confrontation like that. You show up on Monday morning, you go to the barista, you get the coffee, they get your name wrong again, right? It's Luke, not Bluke. You don't know the name of the barista, it's on their thing, but you're too busy to even pay attention to that particular person and even wonder why God has them in your life. You continue down the, the path, you get to the office, the office is filled with all sorts of people who the Lord has placed in your path, but you don't give a lot of thought to that. You'd rather be home, you know, you miss Zoom, you'd rather be home because you can wear no pants or whatever. And so now, <laughs> and so now you're, you're, you're in it. And now Tuesday comes along, you gotta confront this employee, you're worried about it all day, you confront the employee, it goes kind of okay. Wednesday, there's another issue. Thursday, you gotta take your kids to the soccer game. You go to the soccer game, you yell at the ref too much because they're awful. And then on Friday, the end of the week comes and you're thankful that you get to go home and spend time with your spouse who you sit down and watch TV with. 
Saturday comes around, you clean up the garden and the yard. While you're doing it, you don't notice, of course, that every tree around you is a magnificent color of orange and yellow and red. The whole world, it's like God has set a light, but you're irritated because you got to shovel all the stuff. You put it in bags, you leave it out, and then on Sunday morning you get up, frustrated that you have to get up, it's too early, you go to church, and now it's God time. Sound familiar? That's the life of a practical atheist. You do see, of course, that in every one of those circumstances and situations, the Lord has placed those people there for some particular way for you to honor them, bless them, preach the gospel to them. The barista's there. In God's providence, he has placed that person in your path, the person who cuts your hair, that employee. Before you go and you talk to them, you could be in prayer for them. You could be in prayer about all of the things that are happening. And when you leave them, you can be praying for them and how they handle it. You could see all of your life, all of your work, all of your gardening as part of God's plan for your life, a way for you to honor him by being diligent in the moment and praying about all of it. You can lift your eyes to the trees all around and think God is magnificent. We, li we live in a world where he sets the plants alight once a year. And the snow falls in the evening and it comes down and you watch it and you think, wow, what a magnificent God to bring that beauty to me. In a world of harshness and wickedness and ugliness, God brings the snowflakes. You see that that's what the early church did, right? Like every circumstance that they lived under, everything that was going on, they repeatedly saw their experiences through the lens of God's involvement in them. Do you? You know, you could leave every meeting that you have by praying for the people you just met with. You know, you get in the gap time, along the way time, you get in the car, you turn on the radio for like 15 seconds, you could just pray for the people and ask God's blessing on them and ask his blessing on the thing that's about to happen and the things that are going on in your heart with the anxiety and all that. You could lay that down before God. You could relate everything in your life to God. And I'll tell you, if you don't do this, if this is not the way you're going to act, that when the opposition comes, your attitude will be so deistic, so atheistic that you won't see God in it. And you won't stand. If you want a life of boldness, you're going to need to start relating what's happening to God's involvement within. Remember God. Second, remember that God is sovereign. Look, let's look at verse 24 again. And when they heard it, the report that these guys had brought, they lifted their voices together to God and they said, Sovereign, Lord, here's the Greek word, despota. What does that sound like? Despot. That's what we say about our political leaders. He's such a despot. 
these days. And we say it because we want to, we want to say, well, he just grabbing control all over the place. A despot, a despota actually was used most of the time in the ancient world to talk about the, the man of the house, the master of the house. And in those days, there was nobody greater in terms of their authority than the master of his house. Everything that went on in his house was under his control. Didn't ask the opinion of the kids or the wife or anybody else. He just did it. He had sovereign authority over his whole house. And so they pick up this word and they, and they, they start their prayer by saying a despota. Sovereign master God. And that's the whole point of the whole prayer. God, you are sovereign. And then they list out a whole bunch of ways that he's sovereign. Let me show you some of them. Um, sovereign Lord who, who made who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and, and everything in them. You, you, you made it, therefore you have authority over it. Like if I'm on the beach and I'm making a sandcastle and I'm, you know, I've got the little sculpting knives that I got on Amazon, right? And I'm out there and I'm sculpting the whole thing. I'm one of those guys, I'm like a 50-year-old man working on his sandcastle on the, on the beach. Stay away, kids! You know, I've got the moat going and You come along, bully that you are, and take your right foot and you kick it right down. Now we got issues. And I say to you, what, what right do you have to kick my sandcastle down? And you're like, dude, you're going to do that in 10 minutes anyway. The tide's coming in, whatever. I just save you some time. And I say, let me save you some time. You have no right to do this because I made it. Because I made it, I have the authority to do with it what I want. That's their point. Sovereign Lord, you made the earth and the sea and everything in them. Meaning you have ultimate authority and control on how this whole thing goes. You're also the one who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Now they're going to quote a psalm, Psalm 2. You said, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. You see that? All of these kings and everyone, um, excuse me, all of the kings and everyone were set against, right? The Lord and his anointed. Psalm 2 states that that's what it's going to happen. Now, can I just... Pull back for a second, because this psalm that they quote, these are only the first few verses that they quote from the psalm. I want to read you a few other verses in it, because you get the idea of what they're after by quoting it. Here's Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against, there it is again, against the Lord and against his anointed. They stopped their quote there. Here's the next line saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We're independent from you, God, and we've got a, I got a whole bunch of teammates here from all the nations, and we're going to fight against you, God. That's what they're saying. He who sits in heaven, in the heavens, <laughs>, laughs. Okay, I just want you to think about this for a minute. Um, so when my boys were young, I used to um, wrestle with them. That's what you do. You wrestle with them. And I don't know what it is about young boys, but their goal in life is to see if they're stronger than their father. And your goal as a father is to impress upon them that that will never be the case. 
So they come and they want to wrestle you and they jump on your back and you lift them up with one hand and you pin them down on the ground and you hold them and they're like, let me go, no. You know, and you grab the other one and you pin them down and you're like, I've got one hand on, watch, pinky. So eventually your kids, they team up and they're like, we're going to get you together. And what you, dad, what do you do? <laughs> right? Come on. You laugh. Why do you laugh? There's a puny. Right? Because you know that there's no, there's no way. I still do this to my boys. 18 and 20. <laughs> Whatever. Right? I have old man strength. Right? That's what he does. He sits in heaven and he laughs because all of these nations, all of their kings, they're arrayed against the Lord and his anointed and God's in heaven going, oh, muffin, you're so cute. <laughs> See, the Lord, he holds them in derision. Now, therefore, because of that fact, now, therefore, oh, kings, you be wise. Kids, be wise. Be warned, oh, rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. Um, kiss the sun. It's a reference to Jesus. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So what they've done is they've taken this psalm and they've basically applied it straight across to their situation. And they've said essentially that all of these massive authorities that have just called us out on the carpet are arrayed over against God and his anointed. And God is in heaven laughing. For truly, they apply that, so now they're going to apply it directly to their situation. For truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant, whom you anointed. Both Herod, what kind of kings? Well, there was Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles, right? So all of the authorities, the Caesars, the every, all of those and the peoples of Israel even. They all gathered together and they stood over against God and in, they, in that they thought they were, had all the power and all the authority. We're gonna get you, God. But they pray and say, yeah, but they only did whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. <laughs> they array their armies against him and the Lord's like, oh, I've been waiting for you. I planned this all these years ago. It's not just that I laugh because you're standing over there. It's the hubris that you have, the arrogance you have to laugh and think that you've somehow controlled this. You don't control anything. I'm God. I'm the almighty. I'm the sovereign Lord, despota. That's what I am. Now listen, if that kind of knowledge <laughs> starts to get in you, that, that's, that's, what you're, that, that's who God is. That's what he's, he's doing in your midst. That's essentially done. This. We've seen the sovereignty of God worked out right in front of us. We are part of God's plan. We're seeing it worked out. Uh, imagine that I told you that later this week, sometime there's going to be a person with a red sweatshirt who's going to show up at your door and they're going to present to you two tickets to go to London, England, and you're going to meet with a queen for tea. And you'd say, no, probably not, right? I said, just wait for it. And you leave, you think about it for a minute or two, but you know, the bears are on, so then you forget about it. So then you, later on this week, you're just minding your own business, and you get a knock at the door, and then some dude in a red sweatshirt standing there, 
and you kind of remember. And then you, pull, you go to the door and say, can I help you? And they pull out two tickets and they say, I'm here as an emissary from the queen. Here you go. Notice my little pumpkin mobile. I'm, Cinderella's got to be part of this, right? You know, so you know, you can, I got the, the little cart back here and the horses and all that. I'm going to take you to the airport. We're going to fly to England. You're going to meet with the queen for tea. Now, while you're standing there hearing this person say that, you're immediately thinking back to what I just told you a little bit. Would you, in this moment, think to yourself, God is in this? Of course. You're seeing what was described worked out right in front of you, and you'd say, oh my goodness, God is with this. He's in it. You wouldn't cower and go, oh, not me. I don't want to go see the queen. You'd be like, honey, get the bags, right? And you're, you're on the plane. I'm going to go see the queen. I'm gonna, you know? Because God is sending you to the queen. So that's what they're feeling. Essentially, they've got this massive boldness because they're like, we're on God's side. They're the enemies of God. He's laughing. We're the ones on the other side with him. Puff your team. We're not going to shrink back. Why would you shrink back if you have the almighty God and there's a spota on your team? They wanted their knowledge that God is sovereign to work itself out in their actions. Because you're clearly sovereign over everything that's happening around us, Lord, make us bold. Isn't that what we want? That kind of boldness? To know that we're on the right side of history, ultimately. <laughs> so there is this poll. My, my son went to a grade seven, a seventh grade um, camp, and they had this massive pole, about 35 feet high. And at the top of it was a little disc, right? It was like a telephone pole, and it had the little steps along the side that you, have, you know, the telephone guy climbs up to fix stuff. But it was just a pole and had a disc at the top and next to it was a trapeze. The guy who was, took us there, he said, okay, so here's what we're going to have you do. We're going we're to put you at the bottom of this pole. We want you to climb up, stand on the top of this disc with your feet together and jump. 35 feet in the air. We want to jump and grab the trapeze. But we're going to strap you into this harness we're going to link it to a loop in the ground, and I'm going to wrap it around my waist, and the end of it is actually going to be wrapped into another loop, and my job is just to make sure that you're regulated. Let me just show you. And they put the biggest guy, part of the staff, up on the thing. He puts the, 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 the harness on, goes up a few things, and he just lets go, and he's just hanging there. And then he lets him down on the bottom. He says, see, no matter what happens, no matter what happens, you are fine. Well, then the kids go up there and they put on the harness, the first kid, and they say, okay, let me feel the, the tug. And the kid feels the tug. And they start climbing a little bit. They get like three feet up, you know, and they start to shake because there's a perceived danger here. From their point of view, they don't see the thing on the back. They're just scared. They're getting higher and higher on the pole and they slow down and they scare. Everybody in the room, everybody in the and the crowd is saying to them, you're okay, you're okay. He's got you. <laughs> like, there's no risk. I'm done, I'm done, the kid says. Which is, and then he let go, and they hang there and come back down. <laughs> Finally, you get a kid who's, who's 
realizes that this is all a stupid game. Then he puts the harness on, he gets to the bottom, and he starts climbing up as fast as he can. He trips, whoop, he swings back, back to the pole. He climbs up some more, stands on the top, and lunges himself and grabs the trapeze. Why did he do that? Because the knowledge of, his, of safety... The evidence of safety, the knowledge of safety worked itself down into his actions. That's you. That's me. He's got you. No, but I feel like it's so... He's got you. It's a missionary... One of my favorite stories ever about a guy named John Patton. John Patton was a missionary to a place called the New Hebrides. It is called Vanuatu these days. It's in the South Pacific, a set of islands in the South Pacific. What John Patton did was he was the second missionary to go to that island. The first missionary got off the boat, walked up on the sand. They beat him to death and ate him. So Patton decides he's going to go. He gets off the boat, gets up on the land. He doesn't get beaten to death. In fact, he's able to be there for a little while, reaching out to some of the people on the island. But when he reaches out to them, they don't trust him. So what they do for years, guys, years, they walk around behind him with these muskets that they got from traders. Spears being held, stones being ready to be slung at his head. And there was a group of men who walked around with him every day when he would do his ministry among the people. And if he made an error, he was going to have a problem. You imagine? Later on in his life, he wrote an autobiography, and in it he described how he got through that. Here's what he said. I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevail to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ, whose is all power in heaven and on earth. You do realize that you are immortal till your master's work with you is done, yes? That there is nothing that will happen to you in any part of your life that the Lord does not have a purpose in. Not a single threat of death will come upon you unless Jesus, by his loving permission, allows it to take place. You are immortal till your master's work with you is done. Why are we cowering? Why, why would you cower? Why would you think, oh, no, I'm going to accommodate that belief into my belief, change the belief? Why would you just go along? Why? Remember, God is sovereign. Here is the last one. Um, remember, the sovereign God is, is with us. So remember God, remember God's sovereign, but remember the sovereign God is, is with us. Here's the last verse of this. And when they had prayed... The place in which they were gathered together, it was shaken. Um, in the Old Testament, when Isaiah sees, a, sees the Lord seated on his throne, the whole temple shakes. 
when God in Exodus 19 comes down upon the mountain and he's about to give the law to Moses, the mountain shakes. When Elijah is up in Mount Zion and he thinks it's just him alone, he feels an earthquake. See, when God shows up, the shakes show up. And that's what's meant here. Look, they prayed at the end of their prayer, God showed up. And when he showed up, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They got an answer to their prayer. Father, make us bold. And he gave it. He gave it to them. So what you have here is a description of both the power of God, right? The shaking. He controls the earth and all that's in it. And the presence of God. I'm with you. That mixture of the power and the presence of God and the guarantee that that will be with you wherever you go, that line shows up all over the place in the Bible whenever one of God's messengers, whenever one of God's people has to go face a difficult moment. You gotta face a difficult moment, you wonder what, 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 is, what would God say to me? I'll tell you what God would say to me. You, he'd say the same thing he said to Joshua when they had to go and take the land. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I won't leave you or forsake you. Haven't I commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened. Don't be dismayed. For the Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. I'm not sending you in alone. I'm with you, Joshua. Right, right next to you the whole time. At the end of Jesus' ministry, he says in Matthew 28, his final words to the disciples, he said, all authority in heaven and earth, all authority power has been given to me. So go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. I'm with you. You're going out into the world and you're freaked out about what they're going to do to Christians. I'm with you. I have all authority on heaven and earth and I'm with you, my wife, one of her favorite passages in the whole Bible is Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, I'm, for I'm with you. <laughs> Don't be dismayed. I'm, I'm your God. I'll strengthen you. I'll help you. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. The power and presence of God are yours. That should give you a boldness. So uh, when I was trying to buy a car a number of years ago, I was a little freaked out because the car that was listed on Craigslist was in a kind of bad part of the city. And I didn't know. You know, Craigslist is, is a little funky that way because you're not sure. Either you're going to get a really good deal or you're going to get your head cut off. So mm, you're thinking to yourself, I might want to bring somebody along with you, with me, all right? So you, you do. Like, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, well, I don't want to go alone. So I thought, I'll bring my son. And so my son, we, we both, we, we're thinking to each other, we'll go, to, we'll go together. And then I looked at my son and I looked at myself and I said, well, we're big, but kind of in a squishy way. So, so what I want is I need a guy who's big in a non-squishy way. So my friend Nate, six feet, seven inches tall, 300 and whatever pounds, just solid. He's like a lumberjack. He looks like a lumberjack. He's enormous. He's a cuddly little guy in the end, but he's, you look at him, you'd like, hey man, I'll do whatever you say. So I get Nate in the car, 
I get Ethan in the car. I get me in the car. We all drive to this place, and there's this little guy. He's, he's like five foot three. And we get out of the car, and I still said, Nate, go over there. You might have a gun, right? So Nate walks over, and he stands over in front of him, and he says, hey, where's the car? And this guy's looking up at him, and is like, oh, my goodness. And then I get out, and Ethan gets out, and I'm right behind Nate, and Ethan's behind Nate, and I'm like, yeah, where's the car? Show us the car. You better give us a good deal. Right, Nate? Right, Nate? See, if you have Nate with you, powerful, and he's with you, his presence is with you, you have him with you, oh, what'd you say? You got something to say to me? When you're alone, you're like, oh, yeah, no, I'm fine. I'm... But with Nate, when the power and presence of God is with you, it should puff your chest out. And you think to yourself, I can face anything. I can go anywhere. You send me, Lord, and I'll be there. Because I don't go alone, and I'm not in my own strength. God himself is with me. My son is painting this picture. It's based on Psalm 23, verse 4. It's a picture of a little boy, seen from the back, a little boy holding his father's hand as they walk into a, a craggy canyon. And it's black in the canyon. And the son is holding his dad's hand. The father is going to be all white and shiny. And the picture is based upon this verse. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. The sovereign God is with us wherever we go. His, his power and his presence ought to eliminate fear. Even if a gun is held to your head and it commanded to recant, you, you, you can remain faithful. You know why? Because you're immortal. You're immortal until your master's work with you is done. Do you believe that? Better yet, do you live like you believe that? Make us bold, Lord. Let me pray, Father, for your filling of the Spirit that comes on the heels of an obedient people. As we step out in faith and you come along to fulfill your promise to be there, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for all that. Forgive us, Father, for not taking advantage of opportunities to see you work in this way. Forgive us for going through our lives every week and thinking that it's just something that happens day after day and year after year that we're just trying to get through. I pray instead, Lord, that you would set each one of those moments up in our minds as an opportunity for us to see God work. Help us to relate those things back to who you are and to walk boldly out the doors. Even when the world hates us, we walk boldly out the doors because the God in heaven laughs. So bless us with this knowledge and help it to work out in our lives in ways that we haven't seen before. We pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.